We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm your host, Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And in this episode, discussing the music of September of 2021 and specifically Hans Zimmer's Dune, we will be talking about the work of composers including Harry Gregson Williams, Alexandre Desplat and more. And... uh, yeah, it's it, this is this is a bit like the Bond one last uh, last time. This is kind of the month that's dominated again by Hans Zimmer and by the biggest film of the year. Would you say June's the biggest film of the year, Sean? I think it's probably going to take some beating there, isn't it? It's up there, isn't it? It's 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 a curious quirk of fate that we've basically had two Hans Zimmer scored movies back to back. This is obviously all resulting from the pandemic. You know, because Bond was originally meant to be out in April 2020 and June was meant to be out in September, October 2020. And now they've come back to back. So it's kind of like Hans Zimmer smorgasbord, really. Um, but yeah, June, I mean, as as we record this, within the last couple of days, they've announced part two, which is fantastic. So thank goodness for that, because it was obviously conditional on part one being a success. Although I, I don't really know whether the first one has been a qualified box office success yet i mean i know it's taken about 220 million i think but obviously it's only just been out in the uk as we record this for a couple of weeks it's been out in other territories for a while but yeah i mean clearly i mean i don't know if you've spoken to anyone about it i've spoken to a lot of people about it who aren't familiar with the book and they've gone wow 
wow, genuinely amazing. Uh, I mean, we'll probably get into this a bit further down the road, but I I love the book. I've loved it since I was a kid. So I, I, I thought it was tremendous. I thought it was an absolutely tremendous piece of work. And there, there's so much musically that's in there, which is quite fascinating as well. It's going to be really, really good to talk about it. And, and I, I, it, it is good that it's getting part two because I think it's it is very definitively a part one of a two part story. And even though they didn't use part one in the marketing, they definitely used it in the credits for the film itself. So you know it is an unfinished piece of work. So we'll we'll get in a bit more into this towards the end of the podcast, and we'll talk a bit about what we thought about the film, and and then dig into the music a little bit. But we thought we'd, we'd cover, we're kind of maybe not covering quite so many right now in terms of films, because sometimes I think some of the scores, there's not a vast amount to talk about. So we've cherry picked some of the bigger releases and some of the bigger films this month um, to pick and sort of dig into, really. So a good one, I think, to start with is probably the the newest score to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which came out uh, recently. And this is scored again by Alexandre Desplat, who's done... How many of his has, has he done now, Sean? Because I know he's definitely done the last few. He did Isle of Dogs, he did the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, and he done he, them before then as well. Yeah, he did Moonrise, Moonrise Kingdom and he did um, Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Um, I believe Fantastic Mr. Fox was his first collaboration with Wes Anderson because before that, Wes Anderson worked a lot with Mark Mothersbaugh who obviously subsequently went on to do Thor Ragnarok fairly mm. recently. Yeah, I mean, and then and then Desplat won the Oscar for Best Original Score for the Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, didn't he? And I mm. think he was nominated yeah. for Isle of Dogs. So it is a very, very fruitful partnership. Well, I, th- I think I think it, it it's very clear that that's continuing in this because the French Dispatch is... It, it, it's a, it, there's a lot to sort of describe with this film, but it's kind of set... In the the magazine, the Paris-based magazine arm of, of an American journal, who uh, are writing three distinct reports on stories for this magazine, covering th- uh, dif- different elements, see whether it's food or crime and all these different things, and then it's presented in three short stories, essentially with with, with a framing device, and it that and it is. Uh, it's it's got a, a cast that I think you could genuinely describe as out of this world. I, I I can't think of many films that have a, a more incredible cast where you literally have a list stars popping up for about a minute of screen time, where you go wow. I mean, it's just incredible in that sense. And I think it it it's it's got a score I think very much in line with a lot of what Displa has done with. Wes Anderson before. I mean, before we talk about that, what did you think? Uh, have you seen the film, Sean? If you have, what did you think of it? Uh, I haven't seen the film yet. Um, I, I, you know, there's been, been been a lot out recently, and I think yeah. you know, the, the, it's, it's, everything's struggling to find space because of the pandemic. Loads of movies have been squashed together. I will endeavour to go and see it because I, I have liked a lot of Wes Anderson's recent movies. I really liked the Grand Budapest Hotel. I thought that was lovely, and I adored. Alexandre Despard scored for that with the, the 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 Eastern European instruments, the balalaika and the chimbalom. It had a very like feather light, it's charming quality to it. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of Wes Anderson's movies prior to Fantastic Mr. Fox, I really don't like at all. I know everyone loves the Royal Tenenbaums. I really couldn't get on with that at all. Um, mm. I didn't like the Darjeeling Limited. I didn't like the Life Aquatic, but 
I mean, he was putting all that aside, putting my own subjective opinions aside. He is a one man genre, isn't he? You can't deny that. His style is so singular. And as soon as the French Dispatch trailer came out, whenever that was, the first trailer might have come out last year. It's like, as soon as it begins, like that's a Wes Anderson movie, even without seeing the film. Because um, you see, you know, the mixture of colour and black and white, the changing aspect ratios, the 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 very, very, the use of human performance almost as like marionettes where the, the, the physical movement is very, very precisely controlled. You know, every like eye blink, every gesture, every movement. And I know a lot of people find that very irritating. I used to find it quite irritating. And then again, as I said, I, I got warm to Wes Anderson around the time of Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was actually an animated movie. I've not seen this one. Um, I get the feeling that you have. Have you seen it? <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, I saw it last weekend. And I, I, I was much like you. I only a fairly recent Wes Anderson convert. I think everything after Moonrise Kingdom, I've, I've really enjoyed. And I haven't seen quite everything he's done. But I, I found this to be very much a film that I think will need a second watch in that I liked it, but it was incredibly packed with detail. I mean, it, it, it is visually incredible. Like, it's, it's beautiful. Whether or not... It, 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 it's, almost, it's almost like a, 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 a parody of a Wes Anderson film by Wes Anderson in some ways because it's so acutely his style that it... it, it might to some people feel a bit too much and you know the 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 literal sort of framing of the the square shot like a like a portrait which is what he does in age his cuts are just constantly square on pretty much through the entire film with one or two exceptions and it's relentless the detail and the color and the visual of this is is insane and and i I thought on that on that level it was it was remarkable but there's so much in there that you have to I, i wanted to stop and pause the thing at one point and look at the frame um, so on that on that basis, it might be his most detailed and complex movie yet. But I found it a little bit... It's very episodic by the nature of the sort of vignette style, and I found it a little bit diff- difficult to, to get onto it at various points. I found myself more invested and more interested in certain things at certain times. So it was a little bit of a mixed bag for me. And, but I think, I think I will like it more second time around. I love the score, though. I thought the score is very much in line with with the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think there are points, honestly, you could close your eyes, put the film on, listen to the score, and you wouldn't necessarily know which film was which, actually. It's very in line with that. It's a, it, it, even, even if Desplat has gone down the road of evoking much more of French culture than maybe the Grand Budapest Hotel was much more Eastern European in a lot of the instrumentation and things like that. So on that, on that level, it's different. But in terms of the the style and the rhythm and the, the the perkiness. It's different to Isle of Dogs, where Isle of Dogs really went into much more of an Asian thematic idea and, and, and was a little bit more drum-based and booming, in, in a, in, all in a good way, because I think that was a great score. Whereas this goes back a little bit more to the quirkiness and the... I think he's described it, Desplat. He said he, uh, we needed something sparse and clear, because quite often solo piano is used to evoke the newspaper... Um, the French dispatch in uh, in uh, the town of Ennui. Yeah, Ennui sur Blase, isn't it? Which is very Wes Anderson. I did like that. I was like, oh, that's good. Ennui sur Blase. And uh, yeah, so, you know, and and there's there's an evocation of um, a Charles Aznavour ballad. Uh, I'm going to mangle this now, but Jean Dudouis, Que Je T'aime. 
uh, which is a, a um, um, which is a song he 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 wanted to put in that that helps evoke uh, particularly a sequence in the middle, which is. Uh, which involves Timothy Chalamet, who's getting about this month <laughs> in the movies, <Yeah. laughs> and um, Francis McDormand, which is uh, a, a very much a play on sort of French New Wave and that kind of thing. So you can you can see that you could you can feel the the similarities of what Desplat has done before. I don't necessarily think that's a negative. I think it's a lovely little piece of work, and I found there was a few pieces particularly where you, I'm just bobbing my head side to side going, doom, 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 doom. And I love that. And, and again, a bit like how Anderson is so unique in the way he paints a picture. I think Desplat, in league with Anderson, creates these wonderful confections of music that you just don't hear anywhere else. I think confections is the right word, isn't it? I mean, Des, Desplat has got one of the most unique musical signatures of any composer. It's it's very precise. It's very metronomic. I mean, the way he orchestrates his music is brilliant. I mean, you can hear every nuance of the orchestra or the individual instrumentalists all playing off each other. And certainly when you listen to the first track on the album, which is called Obituary, which they released a few weeks prior to the movie, that is wonderful. It's so brilliant. Mm. I mean, the the, pia- the way the piano from, I think it's Jean-Yves Thibaudet, the very celebrated pianist, but the way that mm. mixes with the tubers and the clarinets and the strings and the triangle. And, you know, it builds different, different layers of instrumentation to build what sounds like a salute to provincial French life. I mean, Desplat himself is French, so that clearly must be deliberate. Um, you know, it's a love letter to his home country and you really do get a sense of that from that obituary track. That's brilliant. Sadly, I think that track promises a score that treads water after that. I think, again, bearing in mind, I haven't seen the movie, but what I've heard about the movie is, like you said there, it's episodic and it's quite airless and it's sort of, it, it's it's artificial in that way that Wes Anderson obviously propagates. But I do wonder whether maybe the episodic sort of nature of the story has precluded Desplat from being able to share different themes across these different stories because they're all quite closed off from one another is the impression I yeah, get from reviews. Yeah. So that means there isn't a lot of thematic bleed through in terms of the, the score and the album presentation is a bit weird because you start off with a mixture at the beginning of the album of Desplat and then needle drops then the middle of the album is almost exclusively needle drops from other films. Then you go almost exclusively into Desplat's music at the very end of the album before it ends with Aline by Jarvis Cocker. Um, so it's always a kind of curious question is, does the album presentation reflect the nature of the music, the presentation of the music in the film? I mean, you've seen the film. So, I mean, is it, is it reasonably accurate to the way the, the way the sequencing of the music appears in the movie? Like, I, I think so. I think so. I think the 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 album on uh, particularly on Spotify is quite short, really, and it mm. feels like there's more there's more music in the movie. Uh, so I, I think they've they've almost cherry picked at points, really, because it, it, much like a lot of Wes Anderson films, the score is pretty much continuous, like in, in, in throughout the whole thing. Thing really, I don't remember many points where it stops. Um, I might be misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure it's just continuous because there's so many sequences in Wes Anderson films that are that just rattle on into each other, and particularly in this film because a lot of these short stories are being described by narrators. Like you've got Tilda Swinton at one point describing what's happening in one story, uh, and then you've got an, a, a, one, one at the end which might well, actually my, my favourite one is, is Benicio del Toro and Leia Sadu, which is quite emotive. That's the first one. But I did enjoy aspects of the third one, which was Jeffrey Wright, because it switches a bit to animation 
and it's it's this brilliant sequence. There's a chase sequence animated, which is great fun and very funny. And it has and the music with that works exceptionally well, I think. And and there's a, there's a, uh, I think there's a big track towards the end of the album called the Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner, which I think uh, it, it corresponds with this chase that works really well. And it, and you can hear it on the album, and I can see it in my head. So I think there is there is a there is a link there, and the way the these things are put together. Uh, and I think I think you might enjoy it a little bit more tethered to the film, possibly. I think it's great listen outside of the film. Don't get me wrong. I was listening to it in the car uh, the other day and, and I enjoyed it a lot. But I think tethered to the visuals and maybe knowing a little bit more about what's happening in the film, like with most music, you might you might click a bit more with it, really. Yeah, I mean, if you think of how brilliantly the music is synced up in uh, Wes Anderson's movies, not just with Alexandre Desplat, but with Mark Mothersbaugh's work as well, which I think also deserves a mention. But I want to particularly single out the Grand Budapest Hotel because it's it's so brilliantly done. The the use of the... Because obviously in Grand Budapest, the whole idea is you've got this brewing, brewing fascist <laughs> conflict, haven't you, in this fictional European country and the use of the, the those very like clipped like to snare drum rhythms which are so metronomically timed with the action you think that brilliant moment where Ray Fiennes comes down the staircase and he's confronted by Ed Norton and he quickly sort of does a 180 and tries to run off and he's pursued, he's pursued by, the, by the constabulary and the, the way the music is timed in that sequence it builds to the moment where the two characters start talking to each other and then the music stops to accentuate the punch shine of Ray Fiennes pathetically running away, trying to get away from him. And it's a brilliant example of how music can accentuate visual humour. And I think Desplat's work does that brilliantly for Wes Anderson. Again, I've not seen The French Dispatch, so I can't talk about it in context. So instrumentally on its own terms, I mean, it, it, it does what you expect a Desplat Anderson score to do. Again, I mentioned that obituary track at the beginning, which is so wonderful. I think by far and away the best thing on the album. There is, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned there about, you know, the desire to have the clarity of the piano, um, the, the, the solo piano. That is very, very apparent early on in the album. And I think you can hear the influence of, you know, the likes of Eric Satie, um, who's always who always been a you know legendary pianist and has always been a notable influence on Desplar. I mean, if you listen to bits of the curious case of Benjamin Button, you can definitely hear Eric Satie's influence. But then what you get towards the end of the French Dispatch album is this full bore swing into kind of comical jazz Mickey Mouse style scoring with muted trumpets and clarinets and percussion. And it almost seems unusual for me to say, I almost find that quite annoying because it's so repetitive. <laughs> and you get the, these new harmonic ideas that are repeated ad infinitum all the way throughout the final 15 minutes of the of the soundtrack. And I, it didn't feel like there was any thematic development in it. Um, this, this, I mean, there are different harmonic registers and there are, there are instrumental swap overs and there are, you know, time changes and, you know, key signatures. But it felt like musically on on the album at least without away from the context of the movie it did feel like it was treading water a little bit um brilliant though it though though the music is technically i mean all of desplar's music is brilliant technically i don't think there was much thematic emotional substance in there for me i mean on the album mm. it does have to give way to needle drops from the likes of Jarvis Cocker Ennio Morricone Grace Jones 
uh, Georges Delarue. Um, I believe the Georges Delarue track plays during the bathroom sequence with Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand, which has got uh, that's I've, I've seen that clip online because they released that clip a while ago, which is when he gives her his manifesto. He gets out of the bath to give it to her, and then she's sort of perusing. And goes, mm. It's a little damp, what, literally or metaphorically. <laughs> as, as someone who's written his first book this year, that line yeah. really resonated with me. That, that that fear of someone giving remarks on your on, on your prized work. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think Alexandre Despard is a genius. He's one of the finest exponents of film music today. I think this is doing a lot of what has been done in prior Wes Anderson movies and scores. I think it's very, very well, very well articulated, very orchestrated, nothing new, repetitive to the point of irritation. And I don't know if it goes anywhere, but it certainly shows they are a very, very idiosyncratic pairing, you know, in, in an era where, you know, you get so much, so much beige vanilla music at the very very least it is distinctive and I, I i will i will give them that i'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that yeah i think i think that's it i i could totally get where you're coming from i think there is a repetition to it i think it is copy and paste Wes anderson's score by desplat to some extent I, I i get that completely i agree about the thematic stuff and it's a hard one to to do that with in a way because it is so episodic and and you you do have a lot of the, the the film I found was more about recurring ideas and themes than it was about particular characters to really connect to and who develop as such, and and, and so I think maybe that's part of why the music can't quite get there. But I did enjoy it. I think it's um, I think it's a lovely listen independently as well. Uh, and as you say, you know, it's so unique in what Desplat does. It's just lovely to have this kind of music put out there. So, yeah, it, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see when you watch the film what you make of the score. So, um, so we, uh, we're going to talk about June. That's towards the end. But where we thought we'd do, we always try and do a little look back um, piece in terms of different scores. And we thought this, this month we'd do science fiction because of June and because it's such an all-powering thing. So uh, we've each picked a science fiction score that we both are interested in, we both really like and we both love. And I went for the obvious one. I went for the score to the 1984 David Lynch Dune <laughs> by um, Toto. Their first and only film <laughs> yeah, score. Yes, you, you heard that right, yeah, Toto. Toto. Yeah, <laughs> the rock band, <laughs> Toto. Um, and uh, part contrib- contributions partly by Brian Eno as well, which came out in 1984. Uh, it's. <laughs> I mean, that, that, you can't you can't help but laugh, can you? We went yeah, because it is it is a bit ridiculous. Like the whole thing is a bit ridiculous. The whole film, the whole the, the whole thing is ridiculous. The nineteen eighty four <laughs> David Lynch Dune, um, which I just bought the, the there was a new Arrow video release of that, and I I did buy that, and I haven't sat down and watched it yet with lots of extras on and things like that, because while. The film isn't great. The, there's lots of interesting stuff about how it was made. There are things in that film I think are genuinely quite fun and and decent and interesting in terms of the design, in terms of some of the ideas. Uh, because obviously this this comes from Frank Herbert's book, which uh, and, and there's no there's no getting away from it. Denis Villeneuve and indeed Hans Zimmer do the book far more credit than either David Lynch or uh, you know Toto and Brian Eno did. But 
they are two very distinct beasts in that Villeneuve has had the space and Zimmer to extent as well have had the space to actually and the money and the uh, and the um the, the the creative freedom to create something that is is genuinely in line with the book whereas David Lynch was probably the wrong director for, to start with he had to hack it down to a 2 hour film which is impossible to do dune correctly in that length of time and then because it was the 80s they <laughs> they want to get people like Toto in <laughs> to do a kind of down 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 thing on the soundtrack so you know it's 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 a sort of equivalent to the whole um, the queen influence on highlander i think it's that same kind of you know it's got to be quite you know it, it's got to be sort of stadium rock band cool you know even though you do get things like the prophecy theme which I think is genuinely good. It's genuinely quite haunting and strange and evokes the desert and evokes the journey of Paul Atreides, who's, you know, this young Duke who ends up on a, a quest to become a messiah and all this kind of thing. So I, I, I like it. I like a lot of what it does. What do you think of this, Sean? More importantly, I'm really interested in this. I think this is a fantastic score, and you know oh, okay. what? I'm going to, I, cool. I'm be, really, I'm going to be really okay. controversial here. I think this is the only area in which the David Lynch movie pips the Denis Villeneuve one. Right. I think, ah. I think, I think okay. the Toto soundtrack cool. is better than what Hans Zimmer did with, cool. with the recent Denis Villeneuve one. I mean, let's be honest: the David Lynch version of June is batshit insane. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just crazy. And yeah. I think that when when we when we talk about Toto's score, we we ought to do it with a lot of AS. Samar whispering because because of all the inner monologuing that was in the David Lynch version. Like that, it's like literally. I mean, it, it's it, Frank Herbert's novel has got a lot of that in it, and I'm not surprised yeah. that David Lynch struggled with it because you know trying to. I mean, he took he took his name off the alleged direct director's cut, then it was credited to Alan Smithy, and David Lynch doesn't want anything more to do with it. And, you know, the the struggle to compress the nuances of the book in the form of those inner monologues is ridiculous. Um, it doesn't work, which is where the Denis Villeneuve version stands up is what would have been inner monologuing in the David Lynch version is now depicted as these really extraordinary visual reveries of um, uh, Paul Atreides, you know, brilliantly played by Timothy Chalamet in, in, the, in the current movie it's it's a really and then we, you know we haven't even mentioned sting in his hot pants which is just <laughs> i mean wow that's a sight to that's, behold that's the one that everyone that's the thing everyone remembers from that film i think <laughs> it's the first thing people mention sting like you know wearing belly anything it's so it's so utterly random why wouldn't, but... they, why wouldn't they have got sting to do something musically for this film as well that's what i, I don't, don't understand why isn't there a sting like moment where he's he's singing yeah. something about the desert <laughs> you know that very yeah, sting yeah. way w- was there like an accident on the set and then did they try to call the police and then sting <laughs> turned up is it what is, is that is that like what happened i mean i've got no idea like why, why he's even in it like it's it's really strange but there is a lot to admire about the David Lynch version. I think the conception of the worms is actually really good for the time in which it was made. I think the practical effects are great. The visual design of it is superb. And I think that the Toto score is better than what Hans Zimmer has done for the recent one. I really admire what Hans Zimmer has done for the recent one. Obviously, we'll get on to that later. But I think it's interesting that you 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 describe the, um, the score there almost as like a sort of 
prog rock, like sci-fi, you know, akin to what Queen, yeah. you know, did on, on Highlander or, or maybe Flash Gordon. But this yeah. is a really orchestral score. It's a really accomplished orchestral mm. bit of work. There are only a couple of moments that give way to the kind of cheese rock style of Toto. That only happens a couple of times. The vast majority of this is a really interesting organic mixture of orchestral and electronic. Obviously, the Prophecy theme, which was co-composed by Brian Eno and someone called Daniel Lenoir, is also credited on the album for that as well. That is a really, that's a real eerie slow burn theme that stands on its own. It's got a real like, portent of what Paul Atreides will become. You know, the, the Kwisatz Haderach, the, 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 the prophesied Messiah. That theme stands on its own. There are at least three or four other themes in this score, beginning with that brilliant main theme, which you hear over the main titles, you know, after Virginia Madsen as Princess Irulan has done her awkward expository <laughs> info in which her face randomly fades in and out of the screen. <laughs> it's just, it's like, why did they get her? Why did they do that? I what, people, like, people think the whole, like, Blade Runner and Deckard's, like, description stuff is bad. They ought, they ought to watch this, you know, and have this kind of... <laughs> You know, Irulan monologue. Let's explain the entire future yeah, Galactic yeah. Imperium in two minutes. You know, it's like, it's yeah. Like it, it's said thousands of years in the future. <laughs> there is a planet called Arrakis. There are indigenous people called the Fremen. It's like, oh my goodness so, me. Wait, like, stop. It's, it's, it's stop right there. I mean, but you it, cannot... <laughs> it, it, even, even though they do start the new Dune with Zendaya doing a sort of Did let's describe them. I think that that's much better. But that has yeah. got to be a little bit of a nod to this, I think. Don't you? Yeah. Like a little bit. I, I just think it's hilarious that in, in, in June part one, Denis Villeneuve's June part one, they don't even have the character played by Slinger Fade Rowther, no. presumably because they don't want to create the association of those winged underpants. I wonder if that was maybe the, if that was maybe the reason. Maybe. Or maybe it was just because that maybe that character doesn't appear in the first half of the book. I read it 18 months yeah. ago for the first time. Um, maybe that's more to do with I it. I think so. Um, but um, presumably that character will be introduced in the newly announced yeah. part two. But I mean, yeah. anyway, the, the, the Toto Scott, I think, is brilliant. I mean, there are at least four or five themes in it. That main theme has got a real organic electronic sweep to it. It really gives a sense of grandiosity to the destiny of Paul Atreides. And it's all over the score. Unlike the Hans Zimmer score, which has got impressions and it's more of a, so that's more of a sound design score. This is the Toto score is a thematic one. It's got clear building block ideas. And again, call me old fashioned. I like scores like this. I like scores that have got a clear identity to them. And the what Toto does with that theme, you know, it presents it in full statements like in the opening titles or in other tracks. It's deconstructed a lot throughout the action sequences. You get these brilliant militaristic brassy action sequences in which you can hear fragments of that main theme scattered throughout. So you know that in the context of that battle scene, it's Paul's battle, it's his destiny. And it works, it works really, really well. And, you know, you've mm. got the prophecy theme, as I said, you've got a really emotive theme for Jute Leto, Paul's father, who's played by Jürgen Prochnow in, in this version, Oscar Isaac in, in the new version. Um, that kind of comes and goes, but you've got the, um, weirdly, you've got a track three quarters of the way through the album called Prelude, which I don't know why they called it that, given it happens about three quarters of the way through the album. But <laughs> it's, you know, that alludes to the Paul and Chani love theme, which again has got a real sweep to it. And I I just think that the identity of this Toto score is better articulated than what 
Hans Zimmer did with the new score, whatever is admirable about the Hans Zimmer score, and there is a lot, there is a lot to admire in it. It's fascinating to think that you know, for the the David Lynch movie got the conventional score, and the more straight laced Denis Villeneuve movie got the weird experimental music, which is kind of shows. I think it shows how expectations of film music have changed within the last thirty odd years. Back in the eighties music particularly the thematic melodic music could play more on the front foot it could carry more of the action whereas now i get a sense that there is with a lot of contemporary filmmakers like denis villeneuve christopher nolan and others there's a reticence to allow the music to have that much of a thematic identity what they want is they want music to be an extension of the sound design and it's interesting in the David Lynch version, the music stands out in the sound mix as its own subjective organic element. And it's one of the best, it's probably the best thing about it. And it's a really interesting anomaly because this is the only score that Toto did, as you mentioned. I mean, it goes in there with, you know, the likes of Marvin Gaye with Trouble Man or Daft Punk with Tron Legacy. I mean, because obviously Daft Punk have disbanded now. So presumably we're never going to get another Daft Punk score again. It's it's a really interesting nominee. It's such a shame that that Toto didn't do another one. And it's the, the little fact that I found out that apparently, so the lead singer of Toto, Joseph Williams, is John Williams' son. The really? John Williams. Really? Son. <laughs> Never. So wow. it's really it's really fat. I, I do wonder if he might have picked <laughs> up some some lessons from his father yeah. in terms of composing this June score. Because there, I mean, if you listen to the main titles the development of that main theme with the electric guitar that mixes with those woodwind passages, those woodwind trills, which are very, very John Williams. I mean, it's, it's very mm. got that, that there is that sense of the influence of star Wars lurking behind it, perhaps inevitably it's, it's a, the June, the June 1984 score is really accomplished. I think it's great. And yeah, there are some, you know, cheesy moments in it, but I mean, only a couple of them. And even in those cheesy moments, it's very loyal to that main thematic idea. So it's not like the score goes wandering off randomly in in the desert of pop rock and it thinks, oh, hang on a minute, we need to come back again to the orchestra. It's all centred. And I, I think it's great. I, I, I re- I'm glad you I'm glad you chose this because it allowed me to rediscover it. Yeah, I love it. I, 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 you know, you are right. You've described it brilliantly and you are right in that it is very thematic and, you know, even though it does have the, the you know, the occasional sort of prog rock stuff, it, it is really good. It is really accomplished. I think it's great. It's better than the film, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, no, it, it, it is. And you, you just now made me want John Williams's June. <laughs> that's the problem but the, like, this, this this is as close as i think we would get to it i think yeah. you know this this is this is essentially yeah. it. i mean it, it is fascinating to think that june is an anomaly in david lynch's career this is like nothing else he 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 ever did he ever did and the music is nothing like anything else in this film i mean you think of david lynch's collaborations with angelo badalamenti which are very yeah. jazzy smoky menacing i mean june is a fascinating anomaly for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> whenever I just to finish, whenever I whenever I think of uh, David June and the, David June, David June, David June, <laughs> David Lynch and June, I uh, I think of that great meme. You must have seen this from that interview where he because he he's famous for saying he won't talk about things like David Lynch, <laughs> and there's that great meme where it's David Lynch just looking at sort of like an interviewer and, and it says um, expand on that tell us more and it's just him we're going no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I love know. that and I that's know. exactly it with this somebody said talk to us about June no 
no um, no uh, <laughs> i mean he, he, he did he found it you know it was a crushing experience working on it for him he had to cut the film down it doesn't make any sense it turns paul atreides into space jesus at the end of it which is not the point of the story no. at all that's not the they completely mangled that although that might not end up be entirely david lynch's fault because that's what the producers made him do they made him cut it down i mean there are there are just hilarious bits in it, particularly with that inner monologue where um, th- there's the <laughs> I mean, um, the bit when he's fighting Sting, Fade Routher at the end um, and the blade pops out of Sting's leg and then Karma Clocklin in voiceover just goes, poison. <laughs> as, if, as if to communicate to us what that actually means it's like you, you didn't need to do that like you yeah. just like but yeah. so um, this is it it might it might some of that definitely is in the book but yes it, it's different in a book you know you've got <laughs> and that's, oh yeah it's it's funny it's it's a it's a really it's a really fun film and and it is yeah it is a cracking score so yeah it's um it's good to talk about that in contrast with what we'll talk about towards the end as well the new one so yeah so yeah, let's let's go back to a new score then, uh, one of the other big ones. Now, this is for The Last Duel by Harry Gregson Williams, Ridley Scott's new movie uh, set in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's been described as a, a Me Too Middle Ages movie because it is about um, Jodie Comer's uh, character Marguerite, who is the the uh, the wife of a uh, an, a knight, Jean de Carouge, uh, and, and the, the plot is all about an accusation of rape. Um, by Adam Driver's Jacques Legris, Le uh, so it, 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 it's I'm gutted because I missed this because uh, now now I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I the, the the showings of the, this film was bombed, and the reason I think it's bombed is because it was barely on anywhere. Like uh, there were two showings at my local Odeon, and granted, I live in the I live in you know the the, the boondocks now, so I you know there's very, you know, <laughs> but even so, I've got a decent Odeon in a town about six miles away and there were two showings one of which was at like 12 40 in the in a weekday one of which was at like nine o'clock on the night neither time is 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 the time I, I genuinely go to the cinema anyway that's but it just it, it just went and then it wasn't even on at all so i was very frustrated that i missed this because i've heard good things and i think partly the reason that it's not done well at all is because it was just thrown thrown under the bus i think personally have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it for that re- for that same reason. And it's I, I do think that Disney did them a dirty with this because it was a 20th century Fox movie. I think it started at Fox. Fox were then bought out by Disney. Disney have, as you said, thrown it under the bus. It's not on anywhere anymore. It's vanished. I mean, there is a lot of competition from things like Dune and Halloween Kills as we record this. But it, it's, it's been treated very, very badly. And I also think that the marketing and the distribution have got something to do with it. I also think the subject matter is obviously very, very tough. Um, it's very grim. It's a period drama that holds up a mirror to contemporary concerns. And I think it does so in, in an unflinching way. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm saying that as an explanation as to why audiences might have stayed away from it and why it then subsequently disappeared from from cinemas um you have like a triangular rashomon style narrative approach in which you have different perspectives all shuffled around between the two men matt damon and adam driver's character and then finally alighting on jodie comer's character who is the victim 
of you know appalling like you know assault and misogyny and you know the question is you know is it a question of honor between these two men is it a question of arrogance and masculine hubris all set in 14th century france marshaled by ridley scott with all the you know mudslinging sword clanging action that you expect from ridley scott because he's a master at the the historical epic although saying that i did go back and look at a lot of his historical movies a lot of them are actually quite bad i mean (laughs) with the exception of gladiator and the duelists both of which are masterpieces i mean you look at something like robin hood which is an exercise in tedium yeah um, it's really boring isn't it but um this has had good reviews it's the last duel has had good reviews it's a shame that it's bombed but um it feels like it could be double billed a little bit with kingdom of heaven which mm. was which everyone i i i've there's a podcast coming out soon about this that I did with somebody else, and one of the things that that other that that guest talked about was how the director's cut of that is is way better than the actual theatrical cut, which was the one I've seen, which was okay, but the the director's cut is supposed to be dynamite for that film. So I think he 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 knows how to do this kind of thing, but I think sometimes he just gets bogged down a little bit with yeah with scripts and and maybe just trying to depicts things i don't know i mean robin hood was so dull and it shouldn't have been with the cast it had and you know the the idea robin hood it's robin hood i mean it was better than that taron egerton one which was <laughs> wacky like and, and just awful with, like truly awful ben mendelson going now i'm going to boil you in your own piss which is like one of the best rights i've ever heard yeah maybe I mean, ben mendelson was that. great in it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um i don't know it, so yeah he, he does get a bit bogged down what, what I mean, so we will see the last duel at some point. I think we've got to look at this score independently. Uh, and Harry Gregson Williams is a frequent collaborator. He's also doing House of Gucci with Ridley Scott, which is coming out later in November, um, which is one we might well talk about in a future episode. But yeah, what did you think of it? I, I mean, for me, it I, I I honestly felt like I could close my eyes and be playing Assassin's Creed while listening to this. <laughs> really, it has a very, it has that very medieval sort of Gregorian feel to it. It does, and I interviewed Harry Gregson Williams recently about this, and he was great. Yeah. And he he um he spoke very eloquently about his ongoing relationship with Ridley Scott. You mentioned there Kingdom of Heaven, which did have a mixed reception as a film, but the score was sublime. I mean, really, yeah. really wonderful evocation of, of of the Crusades and of that of that the central battle in that in that movie, and that was, I believe, the first collaboration between Harry Gregson Williams and Ridley Scott, who is, you know, he's very mercurial in terms of who he uses for his composers he did work with Hans Zimmer for a very long time and then he kind of drifted away from Hans Zimmer he's alternated between Harry Gregson Williams and Mark Streitenfeld and Jed Kurzel and you know there you know there are two blemishes in Ridley Scott's copybook as far as scores are concerned involving the scores for Alien and Legend both composed by, by Jerry Goldsmith bingo um, <laughs> there we go. I, th- I thought we'll... it was going to be the next thing we're talking about, but no, you got one in there early. <laughs> I well got done. there. I got there early um, <laughs> because the score for Alien in the theatrical um, edit of of the movie was butchered, and you know had different bits of music tracked into it. And Jerry Goldsmith was not happy about it, but he thought Let, let's let bygones be bygones and work on Legend. That was an absolute disaster because this Jerry Goldsmith score was used in the European uh, cut of legend but for the american cut they junked goldsmith's music entirely and replaced it with tangerine dream uh which unsurprisingly ended uh goldsmith and scott's partnership permanently um there's very little surprise in that so he is he is checkered he has elicited some superb scores from people van gellis obviously blade runner 
most of his collaborations with Hans Zimmer, I think, are great. Thelma and Louise, I think, is brilliant with that brilliant blue electric blues guitar from Pete Haycock. I think that's a brilliant score. Um, obviously, things like Gladiator. Um, I do think generally Scott's collaborations with Harry Gregson Williams have generally been really, really good. Uh, I really like what they did with The Martian. I thought that was a great score with those very subtle electronics because, you know, The Martian, despite its title, it's set on a planet with which we are familiar. It's one of our closest planets. So there is a kind of alienness, but it doesn't push the alienness too far in the music. It is about a human being. You know, who is you know a colonial human being who is stranded on a planet with which we are somewhat familiar so gregson williams walked a fine line in that between making it sound alien but making it sound recognizably human i thought he did a really good job with that and then obviously the running gag in the martian being that you know the score in um interviews around those needle drop you know disco pop tracks that matt damon's character absolutely hates because he's basically he's stranded on mars with all this disco music that he can't stand but he's got nothing else to listen to so that was a really really good movie musically speaking i thought it was great i really like what harry gregson williams has done for the last jewel i think it's very interesting i spoke to him about you know he said that you can evoke the sound of a particular period without using period authentic instruments and he mentioned the use of a French instrument called a crystal bache, which are basically rods that are like basically wetted and you rub them with gloves. Um, and he said it's got it's got like a liturgical medieval sound, but the instrument is actually from the 1950s. <laughs> so wow. it, it sounds like it's from the period, but it isn't. But it evokes the period. And it's all about how do you communicate an impression of a period without necessarily being authentic to it in terms of the technique? I thought that was very interesting. But he said the main cut and thrust of the score is with the vocal performances, which I think is very evident in the soundtrack. I mean, you've got the soprano vocal from grace davidson who basically acts as the inner monologue of marguerite jodie Comer's character and it's got a very very tragic yearning haunted quality to it and harry then told me that as a counter swipe to that he used a male counter tenor voice to represent adam driver's character legrese who is just vile you know vile you know a, a rapist um, and he's got the power of the cat. That character has got the power of the clergy behind him, and the use of vocals for that character strike a decidedly creepier note. Um, I think all of these elements are very, very well mixed in the score. I think, as I said with the Toto June score, there are clear thematic building blocks in the last dual score. It doesn't just meander around in this like miasma of sound. There are there are clear ideas in there. I think the ideas are very well articulated. Harry Gregson Williams also told me that they spotted the movie very carefully and it wasn't there wasn't really a desire to underscore the action sequences, the combat sequences. It was more about how do we work around the conversations that are evident in the movie and how do we how do we capture the aftermath of violent and appalling action rather than scoring the critical moment of a physical conflict how do we capture the aftermath of it musically and you know he worked very carefully with ridley scott on that so there's only 45 minutes worth of music on the album which given it's a two and a half hour movie is quite impressive really it shows that it's well spotted and it's economically done and i think that you know um there are a lot of movies nowadays that are overscored and it's it's an important lesson that you know less is more it's it, it can be and i think this is a case in point i think this is um one of harry gregson williams's finest scores in years actually 
Um, I, I'm not a fan of when he works in the contemporary thriller realm on like the Equalizer movies with Antoine Fuqua. I don't like those scores at all. I think they're really dull and they don't play to this particular composer's strengths, which is in thematic writing. That's where Gregson Williams is best. And yeah, but for the last duel, I, I thought it was really impressive. I, I, I really liked it. I think my favourite of his is Spy Game that he did with yeah. Tony Scott. That's a lovely score. That's a, it's a great film, actually. I really like that film. And I, I think the score is um, score's great. He's, he is good. He can, he, he's, he's not always on fire but when he but he can pull out a really good I enjoyed this I thought it I thought it was good you know what what you've described there makes a lot of sense it's it, it's not we don't have the context of the movie yet to pair it to but as an external listen I felt it really captured the the mood and the feel of that era which I think is something they were going for from what I've read they really wanted to tap into that uh, particularly uh, evoke what it would what it would have sounded like in the 1300s so you know I, th- I think that's there I do and I think you get a. I joked about Assassin's Creed, but it, it, yeah. it, that's not that's not a criticism in the sense that those those scores for those computer games are good in that sense. They do land you in that that period, um, you know. And that game that game doesn't necessarily just take place in the medieval era, but it's quite heavily associated with that stuff. But you know, it's it's good. It is good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I just can't wait to see the film. You know, and it when it appears somewhere and yeah. I, I, I just it's such a shame it, it's such a shame because it, it, a Ridley Scott movie regard and that's the great thing about Ridley Scott is that he's so elastic in the genres he does you know he just he goes all over the shop you know his next one is all about the, the Gucci fashion dynasty like you know he's it's so he's so eclectic in that sense he really does and, and I think it should be every time we get a Ridley Scott movie it should be re- a really big deal and this was just why they didn't move this to January or February next year yeah. I have no idea I, it I makes know. no sense it's it's astonishing that a Ridley Scott movie can bomb not just bomb but bomb yeah. this badly and it, with these actors involved yeah in it, I mean you know Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are both in it and they co-wrote it you know as well I mean but that's the problem isn't it I don't know whether without wanting to be too glib about it, does a millennial audience really care about the two guys who wrote the script for Good Will Hunting? Are they even familiar with it? Because I know they, I think the marketing team did rely quite heavily on that. And I don't know if people really care. Like, I think I maybe they should have been pushing Jodie Comer, who is hot yeah, stuff yeah. everywhere right now. And Adam Driver, you know, again, yeah. like those two are the big new stars of today. They're two of the biggest new stars of today and are going to have amazing, I mean, Adam Driver's already got a pretty amazing career. But Jodie Comer's totally going to have that. You know, we're seeing that she she is great in everything she does. And she can, she can flip between all kinds of things. So, yeah, why they, they shouldn't have been relying on the two middle-aged dudes who were on Oscar 20 years ago. As great as those two can be, yeah, I know. Maybe they, they missed they missed the judge that slightly as well. And it, it was going to be a hard sell because it's a medieval movie about rape. That's not, you know, a crowd pleaser, granted. But even so, it's frustrating. It's frustrating that it hasn't it's, done better. I mean, it, it, it is distracting that Matt Damon looks like he stepped out of Limp Biscuit as well, which is which is really weird. Like you know, he's got he's got the mullet and the chin beard, and it's like what on earth? Um, like what's 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 happening there? That's slightly flippant, but I mean, um, that I mean the the other the other interesting thing that Harry Gregson Williams told me was because obviously this movie was affected by lockdown. The production was basically bifurcated by lockdown. They started filming it. They had to shut down again throughout the middle portion of 2020. And then they picked up again in Ireland at the end of 2020 and they filmed, they finished it. Um, what that Harry Gregson Williams basically worked backwards throughout the score. He came up with a French medieval text called Celui que je désire. 
which is performed over the end credits. Originally, it was going to be lip synced by Jodie Comer, and then they thought, no, we're not going to have her do that. We'll just have it mm. played um, um, not non diegetically. Um, and then the element of that theme, he then sort of worked. Gregson Williams worked backwards from that theme at the end of the movie and extrapolated Jodie Comer's theme for Marguerite from that. So it's an interesting way of learning how a film composer can score a movie non-chronologically. Um, I mean, someone else told me that recently. Oh, that was it. It was, it was Charlie Clouser who wrote who wrote the scores for Saw and for Dead Silence, who's another that fabulous interview, really, really nice person, really, really eloquent. He said that for Dead Silence, the James Wan movie, James Wan told him, right, score the end sequence with all the all the might that you can muster and then work backwards and extrapolate from that ending suite, extrapolate the ideas that you then want to scatter throughout the, the earlier part of the movie. So mm. it's fascinating how this sometimes works. Sometimes you've got to have the end game in mind and then within that end game, how do I distill the ideas and spread them throughout the earlier portion of the movie? Which it sounds like that's what Harry Gregson Williams did with Ridley Scott on on the last jewel. I think I think it's I think it's a terrific score. I can't wait to hear what they're going to do with House of Gucci. I mean, that just looks nuts from the from the trailer. Yeah. Um, well, he was he was asked about this Harry Gregson Williams. Uh, what, what what's that going to be like? And he said uh, the reverse of what we've what we've done with the last jewel. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. A lot of fun. Is what he said. Yeah, yeah. So that that yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, I suspect that film will do slightly better than this one be, because it's mm. because it's got Lady Gaga and they're pushing Lady Gaga quite hard, and it's it's maybe a bit more accessible for audiences. So I, I and, and there's not there's not a Dune or a Bond right at that point necessarily crowding it out. So I think yeah. that will do a bit better. Um, but we will we will see in about a month's time. Okay, so let's go, before we get to June, let's go into our uh, retro sci-fi pick for you, Sean. And of course you've picked a Jerry Goldsmith one. Like, <laughs> we, this was a no-brainer. You've gone for Total Recall from 1990, uh, starring Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, it's a classic. Everyone's seen Total Recall, haven't they? Based on the um, Philip K. Dick story uh, 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 and about... Uh, What's his name? Quaid. Doug oh, oh, Quaid, um, yeah. Yeah, Quaid. <laughs> you think this is the real Quaid? It is. It is. Uh, it's just, but Total Recall, is, it's a really good film, but it's just become so quotable now because of all the all the Arnie moments in it. Uh, you should not drink and bake. There's just <laughs> loads of them. It's I, like, I, um, I love the bit when he, he's, in, he's in the taxi. <laughs> Where am I? You are in a Johnny cab. What am I doing here? I'm sorry. <laughs> Could you repeat the question? How did I get in this taxi? <laughs> the door opened. You got in. <laughs> and then the automated cab ro- cabbie rolls his eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's almost become close to parody now, but it's, it is a good film. The score as well. I mean, I, I get why, you, why you've picked this as like a retro sci-fi pick. I mean, who doesn't like the score to Total Recall? What is it about? I mean, apart from the fact it's Jerry Goldsmith, obviously. What is it about this one that stands out to you, really? Well, it's quite possibly the best action score of the 90s. I mean, I'll just come out and say it straight away. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith was the king of the action sci-fi score. I think that that's undeniable. 
Uh, I think anyone who loves film music would would admit that. John Williams being probably a, a very, very close second, if not maybe on par with Jerry Goldsmith. But even Goldsmith himself was amazed by the amount of notes that he'd put together with this. He said it's, it's got as many notes as, as a Bruckner symphony, uh, which is kind of like, you know, wow. You know, it was, it's a, it was a very, very, it's a very challenging movie to score because there is so much going on. I mean, there is so much thematic deception character deception there are a lot of action sequences there is the extraordinary mars landscape there's the subplot with the mutants um you've got the arnie identity thing you think okay is he a lowly construction worker if he looks like that and it's kind of you know so you don't you don't quite believe he's a lowly construction worker but do you believe he's a spy either because surely he wouldn't he also wouldn't fit in if he was a spy because he's too big so that's the clever thing about the movie he's he's not believable at either ends of those spectrum and goldsmith's music plays into that brilliantly it really it, it really kind of plays up the sort of elliptical ephemeral like sort of shifting mysterious nature of the movie you know albeit one that's laced with an awful lot of bloodshed and an awful lot of carnage because it is a Paul Verhoeven movie and of course Paul Verhoeven isn't backwards and coming forwards you know he's a director of extremes you know extreme sex extreme violence you know but he's a very interesting director philosophically and no matter how mad this film is it actually is very faithful to the themes of the original philip k dick short story um there's there's a sequence in the middle of the movie where arnie is confronted by his wife sharon stone who turns out to be a traitor but also the doctor who's trying to give him the pill that's going to bring him back to reality in inverted commas and that scene is very unsettling i mean that could come straight out of the philip k dick story because there's no action in it and it's all about the what is real, like what what is fancy, what is reality? Is is this an implanted memory? Is he actually is he plugged into a chair back on Earth, and has he had an embolism, and is is his dream now being corrupted into this violent fancy that he didn't initially plan? And Goldsmith's score in that scene has got these very woozy, eerie, like electronic textures that are just accentuated enough to make you question the fabric of what it is that you're watching, and those nuances. Those those electronic nuances, I think they hit a peak of sophistication for Goldsmith in this because he had been experimenting with electronics all the way throughout the 80s to vary, you know, varying degrees of success. I know some people are more warm on this than others. I mean, you've got in the 80s, you had orchestral electronic scores like Gremlins, which you know, that's that's a brilliant score. I mean, it's it's so irreverent and so weird. Uh, you've also got, um, you know, all electronic scores like Runaway or Hoosiers, um, which is, um, you know, those scores do tend to divide divide people. And then you've got something like Legend, we mentioned Legend earlier, which has got this extraordinary dreamlike kaleidoscope of the of the organic and and the electronic, and it's really quite amazing. But Total Recall marks the apex of Jerry Goldsmith's experimentation in this area. One might also be able to point to something like Medicine Man. But it's the the boundaries of, you know, the practical, tangible orchestra, uh, National Philharmonic Orchestra of London in this case, and the intangible, elusive, weird, shimmering electronics. It really does play into the themes of the movie. Like what 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 represents kind of squidgy organic reality and what represents the kind of elusive ephemeral nature of what we make up in our own mind and the score gets that brilliantly 
I think it's just, I mean, would you, would you agree with that? No, I do. I do agree with that. I think, I think you've described it really well. I think it's, it, it's just, I think it's just one of those scores that is, it, well, it's definably Jerry Goldsmith. And it's, it's one of those, it's one of those only, only one of those scores that you could, you could, that puts you in a sense of place in being Mars, this kind of thing, but also being really percussive, really enjoyable and sweeping you along like a proper action thriller should. And I think that's, that's the balance it sort of straddles, I think. And it, and it, it, it does it, it does it really well. It does it in a way that I think you, you could either end up with scores that will be quite fairly bland, fairly lacking much in the way of rhythm, much in the way of, of theme and this kind of thing. Or you could end up with something that's, that's too ephemeral and too distant and not combine the two. Cause ultimately this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie at the end of the day. And you want to get that, you want to get that whole balance together. So I think, I, I, I think it does, I think it does a great job. I think it just great. I, I think it's, I think it's a key element as to why that film works. Really. It's not necessarily the greatest film of the nineties. It's not the greatest film Arnold Schwarzenegger ever did. But I think without that music, I don't think it'd be nearly as good. And I think, you know, you can say that about loads of films. But I think, and, and Goldsmith is very good at doing a great score to a crap movie. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. did loads, yeah. he did loads of that. Yeah, he did. And Total Recall's not a crap movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better because of the music he applies to it. I mean, his ability to create sort of emotional clarity in the midst of a frenetic violent action musical set piece is extraordinary i mean mm. it's so well i mean the, the recording of this score because jerry goldsmith's style was so demanding it required the best audio the best um orchestra, orchestra members in the business that they started this score in munich with an orchestra in munich and the score was too demanding for them. They tried to cut costs to um, send Goldsmith to Munich. It didn't work. They weren't they weren't energetic or precise enough for this kind of score, which requires absolute clarity of notation, absolute sort of it requires an absolute sort of steel grip on timber and pitch and performance. They, the Munich orchestra weren't good enough. They uprooted, went to London. National Philharmonic, who'd already worked with Goldsmith many many times before, and they were attuned to his style which is very, very demanding. Lots of very, very weird time signature changes, often, you know, multiple time signature changes within the course of one action set piece. And his action cues in this score are, even by his standards, are remarkable. You know, they are just, they're relentless, but they're not noise. This is the key thing. I mean, they are so well structured and orchestrated and you can hear, particularly when you listen to it on album, obviously in, in the movie, it's a different proposition because the music is as ever warring with different elements in the soundscape. But on the album, you can just, for example, hear the, you know, the, the xylophone patterns mingling with the French horns. You can hear the strings like sort of competing with the, with the tuba arrangements. It's really, really amazing. I mean, there are so many great action set pieces. I mean, the Clever Girl, Subway Chase, um when um you know arnie has to go on the run for michael ironside's character richter for the first time um the, the the big jump sequence the taxi cab chase sequence with benny which has got these phenomenal just you know weird like meter changes that that you know that continually wrong foot you it's almost like the, the music is like chopping and changing as fast as the bullets are like flying around on the screen but it's never it's never unlistenable this is the key thing. Goldsmith was such a master at this. He could communicate absolute clarity of intent, even when the music is very, very frenetic and very like fast paced. I mean, he was so good at that. 
the best in the business at that. He was the best in the business at pretty much everything, to be honest. But it's he one must credit Paul Verhoeven here because Paul Verhoeven has got a really good understanding of music, um, not just in his collaborations with Goldsmith, but also in his collaborations with like, Basil Polidorus on the likes of Flesh and Blood and Robocop and Starship Troopers. And then you look at his collaborations with Anne Dudley on the likes of Black Book and L and the upcoming like Benedetta. Uh, the Saucy Nun movie, which has caused a bit of a stir, um, you know, this year. We, we we yet to get that over here in the UK. But <laughs> I really want. Racy. I really want them. To, <laughs> I really want them to sell it as the Saucy Nun movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's a bit Alan Partridge. Do you like nuns? Do you like sauce? Saucy Nun movie. They should have just called it Saucy Nuns. That that would have been that would have pulled them <laughs> they in. They would have got more people watching yeah. it. There is they would have got more people watching Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Oh. But you know, from what I've heard, um, Anne Dudley's ecclesiastical score for that is is really great. And Paul Verhoeven has got a really good understanding of film music. You know, whatever one thinks of Paul Verhoeven, he is he is a provocateur. He delights in needling and upsetting an audience, but he's got a really good understanding of music. Total Recall demonstrates his ability to collaborate with the composer Jerry Goldsmith in this case really, really well, and to really get the composer to push themselves to the absolute limit both orchestrally and electronically. And you hear, you know, this level of sophistication coming out in their next collaboration, which was Basic Instinct, which is obviously an erotic thriller, which had a very, very icy, controlled sense of, you know, sensuality, something that's both attractive and deeply terrifying at the same time to embody um, Sharon Stone's central character, Catherine Trammell. They were brilliant together, Goldsmith and Verhoeven, brilliant. And Total Recall represents them at their peak. And, you know, this was such a huge influence on pretty much all of Jerry Goldsmith's output for the rest of his life. He passed away in 2004. And you can hear, you know, this this score is so all-consumingly overwhelming and aggressive and exciting, but also ethereal. And you can hear fragments of this throughout every one of Jerry Goldsmith's other sci-fi action scores throughout the 90s. I mean, you think of like The Shadow, The Ghost in the Darkness. I mean, even things like Mulan and The Mummy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all in there. That's how influential yeah. this score was on his own career. It's, it's brilliant. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely. The question now is, would we say the same about Hans Zimmer's Dune? <laughs> because we're going to go there. <laughs> we're going to go there and talk about it. Um, so... I mean, this this is probably, I would say, this is the most anticipated Hans Zimmer score for quite some time, even even more than, than No Time to Die, uh, simply because it almost feels like the perfect marriage in some sense of... If Denis Villeneuve is, is the perfect director for Dune, and I kind of think he is, really, is Hans Zimmer surely seems, in, in many respects, the perfect person to score a Denis Villeneuve Dune movie, much as... Johan Johansson, when he was when he was alive, said these passed away. Did some great scores with Villeneuve, and it, it could well have been that he ended up doing Dune with him had he had he lived, possibly, and he would have, I'm sure, done a really good job because he was very talented. And there, you know, there's plenty of other composers who could step up and do this. Don't get me wrong, you know, I joked about John Williams Dune, but you know, I'd love that. Yeah. Um, but Hans Zimmer for this kind of expansive, you know, palette of of a film, which is. Most people probably know the story, but it is a, it is set in the far future. It's about a noble dynasty, uh, the Atreides, who come to this planet Arrakis to mine this magical, almost magical source of resource called spice, which powers 
travel around the universe and then they're led into a trap by the evil Harkonnens, another house under the Imperial, um, you know, Im- Imperium they're part of. Uh, and then it becomes the journey of Paul, the young son played by Timothy Chalamet, who uh, is destined to be the Kwisatz Haderach, as you mentioned earlier, the Messiah, uh, 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 to lead a race called the Fremen out of the desert and into like a holy war and this kind of thing. So it, it's it's a massive story. The book saga is enormous. The ideas in Dune are some of the biggest in literature ever. It's uh, it's an incredible book. It's an incredible saga. And you know, I, I, th- I thought it was a, an excellent movie. I, I, I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece of a film, but I think it's a great adaptation. I think it is a definitive adaptation of that book. Certainly the first half of that book anyway. Nobody's done it as well as Villeneuve. I had every faith in him. And for me, he's delivered as a big fan of the books and, and the original book. But has has Zimmer? So that, so two questions for you, Sean. What did you think of the movie, and what do you think of the score? Uh, the movie first, then. So I re I really really like the movie. I think it's very very impressive. I think the first time I watched it, I saw a, a preview screening at Warner Brothers, and that felt quite special just to be able to get back into a preview screening at you know at the home of the distributor who who are looking after the movie. That felt very special. Um, also, the first time I watched June. I I was almost willing the movie to be a good adaptation of the book, given that David Lynch fudged it, although that wasn't entirely his fault. Um, I I spent most of my first screening of June just kind of on the edge of my seat, thinking, okay, do this, do that, don't mess that bit up, don't leave that bit out. And I think what I need to do at the time that we record this is I need to go and see it again because I need to relax into it a bit more. Um, but what I did take away from it is it, it's largely a very, very faithful and very impressive adaptation of a very, very complicated and very difficult book. It's not an easy book to adapt at all, you know, in structurally, thematically, philosophically, you know, the way that it's written. There is so much in a monologuing. I mean, it's a book set in an extraordinary far off desert planet that remains tethered to very earthbound ecological concerns and also you know moral concerns as well so it it does the classic science fiction thing of it uses a fantastical concept to convey very very human emotions like relatable human concerns and i think denis villeneuve gets that brilliantly um through you know the awe-inspiring production design through a brilliantly chosen cast um led by you know timothy chalamet who is terrific as paul atreides you know he does it's not an entirely smooth viewing experience because again it's a very complicated book and there is not everything works but it gets the broad strokes you know sweep of, of the story really really well and it's got a commanding sense of scale really good use of practical effects mixing with cgi which is what you want you want to be overawed by this thing that's the point and it's delightful that i've spoken to several people who have been overawed by it both people who have read the book and people who haven't um i have spoken to other people who haven't read the book at all and who confessed to being utterly confused and bored by the film so it is splitting opinion in that sense the, the the score is an interesting proposition because Hans Zimmer has actually done three scores for this one film, um, which, which is interesting. So you have the official Dune soundtrack album. You then have the sketchbook album, which is basically a conceptual album of suites, um, which he, he wrote prior to releasing the final score album. Then you have another score for the uh, accompanying Dune uh, making of book. So this is um, relatively unusual, though. Zimmer has done multiple albums for individual films before. 
So for me, it really comes down to, you know, which is, I mean, clearly, I first things first, I have to, well, we both have to assess the application of the music in the movie. I think the music works very, very well in the film. It does what it's supposed to do. Um, the use of the pan-Arabic um, duduk, the Armenian instrument, and the use of the vocals to communicate the desert landscape of Arrakis is really, really good. It's really like, all-consuming. Um, you know, And it's interesting that Denis Villeneuve and um, Hans Zimmer have both said that the 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 vocals are the main instrument you know the 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 women's voices um primarily led by lisa gerard with whom hans zimmer worked on gladiator um those are the main sort of driving element of the score and that comes across very well in the movie it gives in the sound mix it gives it a very humanizing um element in what is you know it's it's uh, hans zimmer has himself said that there is no orchestra in this score. There are individual speciality instruments like the duduk and there are the voices, but there are no, there's no orchestra. It's all done with, you know, samples and distorted samples. Classic, you know, Hans, Hans Zimmer approach is what you expect. You know, this goes right the way back to what he was doing in the 80s with, you know, you think of something like Driving Miss Daisy, which was, you know, approximated the sound of organic instruments, but it was all done with sampled it, samples. It was sampled blues. That's what driving. That's what the Driving Miss Daisy score was so it's an extension of that philosophy so in terms of the film i think the music is very effective i think it is massively overindulged in the final act as as with so many contemporary hans zimmer scores it's like right we've got hans zimmer on our movie right let's just let him do whatever the hell he wants and it's like all composers need to be reined in even if they're hans zimmer and I think the music does threaten to turn into a kind of caterwauling blur of noise as we get into the final act. It's like, right, just scale down the music a little bit because, you know, I want to get, I I either want to get a sense of silence, you know, the vastness of Arrakis through silence, because silence is music as well, or I want to hear other elements in the soundscape. And this is a problem I've had with a lot of, you know, contemporary directors maybe overindulging Hans Zimmer again. We've talked about Christopher Nolan being guilty of that, I think, on on occasion. So that's my thoughts on the music in the film. As far as the albums are concerned, well, basically you've got a, a two album situation. I'm not I'm not going to refer to the album that was done for the making of book. I haven't heard that. I think you need you need we need to address the the, the filmic albums mm-hmm. really. As out of the two of them, I think I prefer the sketchbook album, which is the oh, really. Yeah, and this was a really... I I listened to both of these again Mm. last night. I think that the Sketchbook album, which, as I said, was, you know, that's a conceptual album. Hans Zimmer uh, wrote and his his team wrote an assortment of suites based on thematic ideas inherent in the story. What they then did is they extrapolated themes from those ideas, or not themes, but motifs and, and impressions from those ideas, and they turned that into the final official score album. That's my understanding of how they did it. And I must admit, I found the Sketchbook album much more emotionally direct. I preferred the mixing of it. I thought there was a really beautiful, shimmering, Vangelis-style approach to the way that in the Sketchbook album, you can clearly hear these shimmering almost analog sounding synths like something like from the 80s almost which is kind of glitters like like the spice over the surface of a rackish you can hear this like glittering effect yeah it's really great isn't it Mm. and the the way that that meshes with an approximation of an orchestral sound on the sketchbook i think is great i think it's really 
rich and it feels organic even though most of it probably doesn't rely on organic instruments it feels organic it feels tangible and i think the themes for me what calling them themes is a bit loaded the the impressions and the ideas i think are better articulated on the sketchbook album particularly the atreides the house atreides material which is very emotive and very beautiful. I mean, the vocal work, there are three vocalists on the score. It's really gorgeous. I think on the finished album, which obviously pertains to the music as presented in the final film, I think it's much more of a, it's been worked over. The same mixture has been worked over. And I think that it, it's it been not muted, but I think it, the score is more of just like this all-encompassing like blur in which you have to work a lot harder to figure out the distinctions in the thematic material between the various musical elements. I think the final score is like being engulfed in a sandstorm. It's kind of like all much of a muchness. I think that is deliberate. One must also imagine that Denis Villeneuve had a strong say in this, that maybe what he wanted was more of a just a musical experience that is much of a muchness that is quite samey for want of a better word that's not to say there aren't impressive things in the finished soundtrack album because i think there are it's just that it's quite fascinating the way that the certain textures that were present in the sketchbook album for me have been dialed down for its presence for the music's presentation in the final film but i've talked Mm. a lot what about what are you what are your thoughts uh, on it yeah, it's interesting it's very interesting though in that i, w- I was going to bring up the, the different albums definitely because they're they they are they are different in what they present you know you have things like in the um in the house of treaties track in the sketchbook you have more of the bagpipe stuff which was yeah. really, really yeah. surprised me in the film i was like does this mean there's like a scottish ancestry because we have to assume <laughs> that all of these because there's no aliens in june you know it is it, it, it is about humans in the far future, as much as the Harkonnens seem quite alien. They're not; they're all humans. So uh, we can all we can all assume we can assume that they all go back to Earth, and, it, and it's just the far future of our life. So you know, there's there's lots of ancestral kind of possibilities, and, and the music reflects that. I mean, you've obviously got a lot of uh, Middle Eastern instrumentation for the Fremen and this kind of thing. So you know, you can assume that the, 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 those things are in there, and it comes out a bit more in in the. Uh, in the sketchbook one. The sketchbook one I found, though, was a little bit uh, experimental in a way that I think I, I think I liked the, the score itself, both independently and in the film, a little more than the sketchbook. Because the sketchbook, I think, uh, the, like the, the, the Bene Gesserit one, the Song of the Sisters, is very intense and screeching and, and it's, it's, like, it's like a scream in a way, which makes sense because... It's trying to capture the idea of the voice, which is what they use to to mind control men, and it's brilliantly done in the film. So I understand from a thematic point of view from what it's trying to capture, but I think I quite got swept. I got swept along with the score, I think, in many ways. But I I totally see where you're coming from. It does sort of mesh in to one sound in some senses, and it's it's harder to pick out those particular moments and those particular themes. Um, I, I think I think there's fewer instances of that. I think I think I think you could I, almost you can see it, I think perhaps better at the very beginning at the very end you know when it starts with Dream of Arrakis which is introducing the desert and it and and, and that and the, the trying to put you in a sense of place and at the end my road leads into the desert which is where they go with the Fremen which is the end of the movie um if that's a spoiler sorry but while you're listening to this if you haven't seen the film 
Um, yeah. <laughs> it's your own yeah. fault. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think I, I see where you're coming from, but I think I got swept away by the lyricism of it and the power of it. And I, I enjoyed the, the listen when I came back from, I had quite a long drive from the cinema I saw it at. Um, so I listened to the, the score on the way home in the car and I, I, and I, I enjoyed it again on, on a different level. But I do see what you mean about, about the sketchbook sketchbook one I, I can see that that, that 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 I think Zimmer has the opportunity to pull out in that longer form more specific emotive and key themes about from all these characters and all these moments yeah I think that the the Finnish score album is is kind of wispy and ephemeral it's almost like it's it's shifting like the sand over, over Arrakis that, yeah. that's the way I, I see the finished score the concept album puts the th- puts what might be described as the thematic ideas, more motifs. It puts those more to the forefront. That that aspect of it, I think, is dialed back, and it's more about what is the soundscape in the finished score. Mm. Um, how do you yeah. go through this blur, this almost like sort of sandy, like foggy blur of you know sort of noise that it's more about pitch and tonality than it is about recognizable ideas now i'm not denying it i admire the finished score very very much in fact i'll i'll go on i'll go on the record and say i prefer this score to what hans zimmer did with no time to die okay yeah i, I will say that because in no time to die as we discussed there was that kind of awkward lurch between the hans zimmer sound and the james bond sound which yeah. i thought was a bit problematic this June is all Hans Zimmer. There's no, yeah. there's no denying it. <laughs> it's true. So yeah. it is consistent. You know, the tone of it is consistent and I don't have those problems with it. Um, and I do think the use of the vocals in particular in both of the albums and in the finished film is brilliant. And I think that's really well done. And it is very important to give it that humanising element. The fact that Villeneuve and Zimmer recognise that the women are the driving force of the story, the Benny Jesserit, and they use three female vocals. That's very intuitive. It shows that both Villeneuve and Zimmer understand the makeup of the story, which is great. I don't think the score, as heard in the final film, has any of the grandeur or the wonder of what Toto did with it, which I think is a more appreciably heroic sweeping score. The Zimmer score is more ephemeral and subdued. Occasionally it peaks its head above the parapet and comes out with something quite abrasive in the manner of what Nolan did with, with Zimmer, what Zimmer did with, with Christopher Nolan, beg your pardon. But what I will say is I admire and appreciate the June score very much. And parts of it, I actually really like parts of it. I, I, I really, I really, I really do like a lot. What the score isn't is innovative. It's nothing new. And I think that this is important because there's with every Zimmer score, there's a lot of PR bump about how Zimmer has basically reinvented the wheel. You know, he's reinvented, he's invented a new musical language. No, he hasn't. I mean, there's every single thing in June is an approximation of what we've heard Zimmer do before in other scores. He's got such a singular sound, such an all encompassing sound. You could not mistake this for anything other than a hand Zimmer score. And the genetic material of every single score he's done previously in his career is in June. And what it isn't is anything radically new. I think that's that's the key thing with me. And I think anyone who likes and admires the, the June album or both June albums um, would probably be, be advised to go back and listen to 
when Hans Zimmer broke out into Hollywood in the late 80s and early 90s with things like Black Rain, Rain Man, Driving Miss Daisy, Days of Thunder, you know, regarding Henry, Thelma and Louise, all of all of those scores were, at the time, those scores were genuinely innovative. He was a real, Zimmer was a real refreshing voice, really, really pioneering use of electronics at the end of the 80s. Again, sort of picking up the mantle from Jerry Goldsmith in a way, but Zimmer did it in his own way. And that then built into the development of the media ventures later to be remote control empire where the orchestral and the electronic became really blurred to increasingly controversial effect that came out in things like um, crimson tide in 1995 so it context is important with this um june the june score has not arrived on its own and i think that you need to in order to appreciate it you need to understand what hans zimmer has done before and you also need that historical context to understand why the June score isn't as isn't particularly innovative. It's very impressive, and I like bits of it, but it's not. It's nothing radically new, or it's not like wow, I haven't heard that before. I mean, the tonality of it, you know, to pick you know a random example, the tonality of it is very very similar to Gladiator in certain sense, particularly the use of the vocals. I mean, Lisa Gerrard, you know, the presence of Lisa Gerrard reinforces that. There are bits of it that reminded me of his work for Christopher Nolan. There are bits of it that reminded me, oddly enough, of his score for Ridley Scott's Hannibal. Um, you know, there are electronic experimentation that, again, as I said, goes right the way back to his work with Stanley Myers in the in the 80s, you know, albeit done in much more sophisticated style now because Zimmer has got the, the clout and the budget and the team to be able to smooth out those electronic edges now. And, you know, you genuinely cannot tell in some instances, is that an orchestra or is it electronic is that a real instrument or is that a sample back in the 80s you can sort of tell that nowadays you really can't tell and i know that's an approach that's very controversial with a lot of people a lot of people don't like that i think in this instance i'll give him the benefit of the doubt because i think that approach gets under the skin of the story and it honors the spirit of arrakis and its people. So on the whole, it's it's a thumbs up from me. Mm. I'd I'd say fascinating thoughts. I, th- I think I think a lot of uh, film score fans, you know, people who might listen to this and people we we follow and things like this, have a real fear that that the way Zimmer does things is going to sort of take over, yeah, and be the future of film music as opposed to full blown orchestration and uh, you know in- innovation in that sense. And it, it's it's a it's a concern. I mean, I, I, we we know, and anyone listening to this who's listened to us, no, I like Zimmer's modern work maybe slightly more than you, and and I, I, but he does divide, and I completely see where this is coming from and what and what you're saying, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of. It's funny you should talk about the innovative, you know, nature of this and that it's not doing anything new. It's it's been interesting to hear people try and talk about Dune in the same way. And, and suggest that it's you know a, a step forward in the cinema, and I, I, it's not. It's, it's 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 not. It's a really <laughs> great movie in many ways. I don't think I, I you know I did give it a five star because I do think it's a fantastic adaptation. I don't think it's a masterpiece though, and I don't think it's it's anything that's going to be zeitgeist. You know, somebody said you know is this the zeitgeist movie? You know, like Star Wars was in 1977. No, no, it's, it's not. It, it's 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 the it's the culmination. And maybe you could think of the music in terms of Hans Zimmer in the same way. It's the culmination of where science fiction filmmaking has been going for a long time. June. It's not that it's doing anything new. It is building on a ton of different things, different filmmakers. Denis Villeneuve's own career. You know, 
it, that and this is what we're getting. This is this is this is as bad as in many ways about as big and expansive as it gets in the modern day. You know, with all of those. Di- but it, but it, it absolutely wouldn't exist without things that were made 50, 60 years ago. So I think and since. So I think it, it, it has to. There's always with these kind of massive releases, especially when it's something like Dune, which people and I count myself like this. I've been waiting decades for to actually see properly realised. I think there's always a, 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 a temptation to get swept away and get a bit carried away by it. And I think the, the same is true of the score. I do think it's a great piece of work. I do think it's a really good one. I don't know if it's... It's funny you should mention Gladiator because when myself and Luke Winch talked about this in Real Talk on, on We Made This in more depth, specifically the film, he mentioned Gladiator. He said it sounds a bit like Gladiator. I said, yeah, it does. You know, absolutely. So, you know, he's, you're right in that it's building on what Zimmer's done before. So... It, it, it's not transformative, but equally, I think I think it is. Ex- I think I think it is excellent, and in in a way, I can't I can't imagine the film Villeneuve made being scored differently. In a way, I, it's it, it feels very fitting with what is on screen. I think does it work quite as well as an independent experience? Maybe not, and maybe maybe that's. Maybe that's a, fo- a factor that he's tethered a film to the music. He's tethered the music to a film, the film very well, but it's maybe a little bit too intense and connected to the visuals to really stand on its own in quite the way some of his other scores do, to be fair. Well, yeah, and ultimately that's the role of film music. That's what film music is there to do. The, the, the composer is there to support the director's vision. It's not the composer's movie. God knows I've had I've had countless conversations with film composers over the years where it's like, it's not my movie. I'm there in a supporting capacity. But what I can do as a composer is I can hopefully imbue the director's vision with more, with textures and meanings and emotional depths that the director might not have foreseen. I think that Denis Villeneuve, as I mentioned um, a, a, short, a, a while ago, it, Denis Villeneuve is, uh, is of the breed of director who they, they don't, don't necessarily see the music as an organic element standing on its own. Basically, what you get is this blur of objective sound and subjective music all kind of rushing at you. Christopher Nolan, again, is another director I think is, does this. And, you know, you don't necessarily get that you know, when you take sound and music together, you don't get the nuance in the wider sound design. It come, it sort of washes over you, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, that you are being taken to Arrakis. It's a huge story. I mean, what you do want is maybe a bit more, you want maybe a little bit more detail, a little bit more nuance. I mean, I do, I do think the movie is very, very impressive. Part of the problem is because it's part one, we can't, we don't get the contextual significance of what happens in part one until we're going to get part two. This is, this is part of the issue with it. So we see things happen in part one, but we won't get their meaning until we see how they're resolved later on. I, I do think for that reason, the movie is a bit of a sterile maybe slightly self-serious experience although the book is hardly a barrel of laughs is it i mean it's, it's it really isn't it's not it's not a humorous book and Villeneuve has been very faithful to the tone of the book um and i think you know much as i hate to say it that air of 
self-serious portentousness does creep into the music as well and that you know it, it's not helped by the fact that you've got this constant PR blitz which further drums up that sense of self-seriousness which says look Hans Zimmer has come up with a score that nobody's ever heard before we've heard this score before mm. you know that mm. that's not to diminish its effectiveness it's very very effective but rest assured we have heard it before we've heard these elements before and um again to go back to the David Lynch June and the Toto score that accompanied it I do find it fascinating that you know David Lynch in that in that particular film favored the music you know more David Lynch is often a director who deliberately particularly in his more recent films blurs the lines between sound design and music and yet ironically enough in June the music is allowed to stand on its own as its own separate element. I didn't get that sense from the most recent Dune movie. I think that's a byproduct of a lot of contemporary way of thinking about filmmaking and film music. This is the impression I get now. But for the main, I was I, I, I was impressed. I mean, I am I am really interested to see how Zimmer is gonna pick up with these impressions these chord progressions these instrumental impressions and how he's going to develop them potentially in the second half as paul timothy chalamet's character hastens his transformation into the kwisatz hadarak you know through the water of life sequence and so on i'm really interested to see how zimmer's going to do that i mean there are there are sections on both the final score album and the sketchbook album that are deeply unpleasant to listen to i thought right i'm glad i've listened to that because i don't have to ever listen to it again um, you know, really kind of abrasive, you know, use of like guttural vocals, like sort of sh- shrieky, scratchy electronic arrangements. And it's like, yeah, I do feel in those sections that this is going, <laughs> this is going into the air, air of the sort of like slightly blusterous, noisy, self-serious, we're going to throw everything at the wall and communicate this is a radical score approach it isn't it's just you know that that i that philosophy i do have a slight problem with but for the main i yeah i'm i'm really i'm really interested in where it's going to go i mean you know you're right it it is that this score is very of a piece with the music that denis villeneuve has coaxed in his previous movies and i think that you know, it is the director's film and tonally the music, the music for June was always going to sound like Blade Runner or Arrival or Prisoners, you know, albeit done by Hans Zimmer. So I think that was inevitable, really. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, it's kind of the score, I think, we might have expected or something along the, you know, along those lines. And it, it will be interesting to see how it, how it lingers and how it lasts and if people talk about it with certain reverence and and. I pick out certain things from it and in, in a way that we see from other science fiction movies I don't know if that's going to be the case we will see we will see I think time will always tell with with film scores um but uh but yeah it's very interesting very interesting to talk about and and it's 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 a big it's a big score for a big movie that I think will inspire a lot of conversation for a long time to come so can I just can I just interject with one final thought um I mean it is one thing I do have a problem with is that there are a lot of very, very good unsung film composers out there, not just in Hollywood, all over the world. I mean, you've got, there's a real, you know, film music is coming from, obviously film music has always come from all over the world, but there there is a real diversification of voices from different countries all around the world now. And it's, you know, the, the presence of a new Hans Zimmer score is so 
all overwhelming and so all consuming and it hogs so much oxygen as far as publicity is concerned and you know there are really other interesting things coming on from other composers who have yet to basically find that platform and i will say in zimmer's defense he has given that platform to people like harry gregson williams and john powell and lorne balf and people but you know they are folded into this hollywood system outside of hollywood there are composers who are maybe trying to assert their voice but who don't have this aggressive publicity blitz <laughs> yeah. that comes with every new hand zimmer score that i do i mean that, that's inevitable i mean that's more of a philosophical problem that's not necessarily to do with zimmer that's to do with the ecosystem in which he operates but that i do have a problem with and i think that it's important that we don't define film music by the presence of a new hand zimmer score there is so much else going on like elsewhere mm, mm. Um, I think I think that's re- that's really really important. I just wanted to sort of say that I think Hans Zimmer is a genius. I I do genuinely think he's a genius. What he has done for film music is by turns extraordinary and troublesome, but it's really important. To, he's not he's not the main focal point as far as everything to do with film music is concerned. But he has I mean he has achieved an extraordinary amount and he's rewritten the language of film music. So it's inevitable that whenever he does have a new score out, he gets this much attention. That is perhaps inevitable, but it is important to cast the net wider and look at other at other things as well. That's yeah. what I would say. No, I think that's a really good point. I think that's important. It's definitely important to say he's gonna he's gonna he's dominated conversation recently with these massive two movies. But um, yeah, there is a lot of other interesting stuff going on that maybe we haven't had time to cover or got time to cover on here. But um, but yeah, yeah, do 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 seek that stuff out. Definitely, it's not all it's not all Zimmer time. Um, so, <laughs> but it's been it's been good to talk about it. It's been it's it's been it's been really good. We're gonna um, we're gonna have a, a sort of a month off, and we're gonna come back at the start of January uh, and, and 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 mop up some of the scores over the last couple of months so um i dare say we'll be talking about things like um spider-man no way home uh, maybe stuff maybe house of gucci maybe stuff like the matrix resurrections or e- eternal spencer johnny greenwood score for spencer there's quite a few things out so I, I think we'll last night in soho so there's quite a few movies out that we'll uh, we'll try and we'll try and mop up some of them we'll, we'll, we'll do some cherry picking and uh, and see which ones we come back and talk about towards the start of 2022 now um so that'll be fun. But yeah, thanks for joining us for another episode. Uh, and remember, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to Between the Notes and give us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to help out our network, please consider supporting us financially on Patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash We Made This. Sean, why don't you um, point people in the direction of, of what else you've got going on, where they can find you online, and uh, Frame to Frame, your other podcast, which is still going great guns. Yes, uh, Frame to Frame, I present with Andy Williams on the We Made This Network. Um, check out our latest episode in time for Halloween, uh, which is about Japanese ghost stories, Ooh, uh, nice. Cure and Dark Water. I mean, that's probably my favourite episode we've done so far. We've been doing it for 18 months. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really proud of that episode, I think. I think it's really great. But yeah, it's, follow us on Spotify and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Seano22 and still burbling away towards my <laughs> my first book um yes. soon to be published by mcfarland yeah so th- it's going to be called the sound of cinema hollywood film music from the silent era to the present day 
so um hopefully due for publication next year from mcfarland publishers can't so wait. um can't wait for it yeah we will discuss it at length on this podcast at some point yeah when it's out yeah amazing can't wait you can find me at aj black writer on twitter which is where i mainly hang out and uh, my writing uh, and such on um ajblackwriter.com which is my website um, and, I, and I'm all over We Made This so at WMT underscore network on Twitter where you'll find all the links to uh, all, all the other uh, podcasts we have going on but um, film music is not all we're discussing on Between the Notes so we'll give you a taste of what else you might have missed on the network in just a minute we'll play you out though with another track from Hans Zimmer's Dune uh, and until next time we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed that you stay safe and well And we'll see you soon discussing the music, a film, and maybe some television between the notes.
on We Made This. The TARDIS crew. But the 11th hour is just something about the way he comes in immediately and just steals everything away from Tennant. Fish fingers and custard and boom. And then you get that ending scene where he's walking through the hologram images and he deserves that at this point. Absolutely. I think the 11th Doctor is a masterclass introducing the new Doctor. I don't think any story has ever really topped top that for introductions. The Giddy Carousel of Pop. I went to the San Remo Pop Festival on a plane. That's a smash hits memory for you. On a plane with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. We had Frankie, all of Spandau Ballet, all of Duran Duran, Sade, Chaka Khan, Bronsky Beat, and Talk Talk. All on the same aircraft. I remember thinking... If this if this old barge goes down, then A, what's the insurance? And B, you know, the Cocteau twins will probably have a hit next week because the, the whole thing will be cleared out. Right in the childhood. It's a documentary. Oh, get in the bin. So this was... Oh, okay, right, we talked about precious, but documentaries, maybe that is the... Uh. So it was a Halloween thing where they had a lot of very famous TV presenters from mm-hmm. the time presenting from the most haunted house in Britain. And, yeah, this... Uh, it was massively controversial at the time, and it was... Either you thought it was amazing yeah. and, you know, it was critically like well decided. Yeah. Yeah. Ish. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Seano22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes. On iTunes, your podcast app of choice. On Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.